This is the Sea to Sky podcast with Marcus, weaving through the issues in Sea to Sky country. Welcome to another edition of the Sea to Sky podcast. My name is Marcus. I am sitting in the beautiful home uh, of Patricia Heisman, our mayor or exiting mayor. And thank you very much for doing this. This My is my pleasure. Fantastic. And um, you've been relatively quiet during the election, mm-hmm. so you've watched the the foray happen, mm-hmm. and I guess you've heard all the topics. Um, you, you were just talking to me about how you listened to a lot of the podcasts. So, mm-hmm. do you think the the elections topics that were mentioned or talked about were on point? Where you think that's where? I think there was some things that were missing from the discussion, and it, there are so many issues that you're not going to cover them all. I think my challenge with the election is. There's not enough sort of thoughtful deliberation about what people are saying. People sort of pontificate, say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, but there's no sort of evaluation or analysis of what people are actually saying. So right. it's sort of like digging in deeper. Can you say, I want to do this, 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 and not increase taxes by more than 2%? And if you are saying that, do you have an understanding of what municipal finance is all about and the, the things that are sort of dictating how that happens. So, you know, I, and I don't want to, I'm not making any judgments on anyone necessarily, but there was not, not none of that analysis that was done. And so people could kind of just say whatever they want. There was, so for example, um, some of the all candidates meetings, people were saying, well, we should do this. You know, we should have a zero waste strategy. Well, we do have a zero waste strategy. Like it would have been good to have some pundits out there saying, you know what, this has already been done or you know, that's a good idea. be interesting to see how that played out. But all this other stuff is actually redundant. We did that five years ago. We did that two years ago. Yeah, I noticed with a lot of the, a lot of candidates when they were when they were talking about, we should do this, we should do this. I'm like, that's great. What do we do in the interim? Um, and I do know it's like we've had this study and that study already done. So you're talking about, let's do a study. It's like, but it's already been done. It's like we have well, the Economic Development Committee already. We have all these things already being set. I just, I was looking for what's next. Yeah. Right? How do we exactly? I mean, you you can criticize what other councils have done. Absolutely, you know you can't get everything done as a council. It's impossible. You don't have the money or the capacity or the time to do everything. You just simply don't. There are things that I know our council wish we could have gotten to, which we just couldn't get to. Uh, and there's probably multiple uh, factors and why you couldn't get there. Um, so it's easy to criticize those things, and that's just part of elections. And you just have to sort of. Grin and bear it. That grin and bear it. And I think that was probably the hardest part about not running is not being able to rebut some of the stuff that was just absolute nonsense or untrue uh, and sort of sit back and just let the new players do their thing and, and not insert myself into, well, actually, that's delusional because <laughs> or how, do you, how are you going to pay for that or right. we actually tried that and here's why we can't do it. Or it's actually legislatively illegal to do that. Maybe you should read the legislation. So, yeah, that was certainly the hard. I think one of the hardest parts was to sort of sit back and listen to it going, oh, my goodness. And not sort of be able to to defend uh, my council's record, but but also be able to say, well, no, but here is the real solution. But that's what happens, though, when you have large changeover. Mm -hmm. I mean, you decided not to run, and pretty much all of council decided not to run, um, except for, of of course, Karen and and, and Susan trying, you know, trying to going for your job, right? And then Doug Race. uh, And and Doug, I think, played it smart. He's like, Mm -hmm. I'm the incumbent. The other 22 candidates are talking about me anyway, so I'm good. So there was not not a lot of back and forth, I think, with with, with incumbents to sort of misspell or dispel Mm -hmm. some of those, uh, some those 
issues that you were talking about. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's just the nature of it. And, and uh, our local media are under-resourced. They don't have the time to sort of deep dive into these things. That's just, just the way it is. I think the result was a good one. The Squamish always seems to come together and put a, a diverse group in, in that office or in that chamber. You can always look back and regret how things, how the con- conversation went. I think ultimately... I think we have a pretty good group in there. So well, let's not look at regrets right now. Let's look at your your tenure of what mm. you what you've accomplished in the last uh, few years. I mean, there's there's some big projects. I mean, the gondola, uh, the Olympics came through. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there must be some some prize pieces you like to show off. Well, yeah, it was interesting. So I, I've been on council for four terms, so 13 years. The last term being four years, the previous three being three years each. Mm-hmm. Um, in my first term, I was in my 30s. I had no gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I, was, that's I, was still, I was still here when you got yeah. in. Yeah. It was a, a time when development was ramping up. And essentially in that term, uh, because development was just going off the hook, the Olympics had just been announced in, in 2004. All of a sudden, you know, the, re- the development community, um, there was a bit of a, a land rush in Squamish from 2005 to 2008-ish. Mm-hmm. And so that first term was really dominated by um, large, you know, the oceanfront came forward at that time, waterfront landing came forward, what they used to call Red Point coming forward. You know, the Chikai became a part of the conversation. These big things were really happening, and we basically stopped doing policy. The term before it started in OCP, in that term, we didn't even touch the OCP barely because we just didn't have the staff to deal with all those things. So then we reached 2008, and um, development, you know, there was world economic downturn, development basically, the tap turned off, and all, and we had an opportunity to sort of drill down on some policy pieces. We did quite a bit with First Nations then. We, we finished the OCP up. You know, we, we started to do a little bit of policy. 2000, and, and we had the Olympics, which is a huge distraction as well. So, and then uh, 2011 to 2014, you know, it was a little bit of, tiny bit of development, not very much. We did tiny little policy pieces. Um, some of the big things were like branding. We, we knew we had to sort of, you know, uh, have a new story or, or create this story for what Squamish is today mm-hmm. based on what it was in the past and what we think it's going to be in the future. But so we went through sort of an identifi- identity catharsis in that period. And then the last term, we knew that development was going to just totally ramp up. Right. But what I said to council right at the beginning was, we made this mistake in 2005 and just stopped doing policy. So our message to staff was, we are going to hammer on policy and we're going to make sure we're resourcing properly to deal with the uh, development applications. The development applications pay for themselves. So a developer comes in, they pay a fee. Right. It covers the costs of planners and engineers and environmental, and you know, all that it it covers the cost of all that but we said we're going to do policy and we did massive amounts of work last term and you ask you ask any staff who's been in the district for a while and they're like this council did more work by far than every other council in the past well, explain why there's such a burnout rate there with my <laughs> well it, interestingly three ran for council yeah. two of them just ran for mayor true enough two of us just decided not to run and two moved yeah. out of town because of family circumstances right. and needed to move so it was just they sort of accumulated to all of a sudden only having one incumbent councillor running oh exactly um, but actually three out of seven ran true enough true <laughs> enough true enough like, do, do you feel that the pace of development in Squamish was too fast or was it slow or just right when they turned the taps back on as you said I think it was too fast I mean if, if you can you know make a wish on a crystal ball and say what what would the growth rate be you'd probably say I want it steady at 2.5 to 2.8 every year that's like we can absorb that from a taxation point of view from an infrastructure point of view we're right about that sweet spot actually 
you know, economists would say, you want your growth rate to be in that area because you can manage it. Right. The problem is it's either zero or six. And over, over the long term, like over the 10-year census from uh, 2006 to 2016, we were right in that perfect sweet spot for growth. But the problem is it was, it was zero for a while. And then all of a sudden 2015 came and it was six. You right. know, if you average it out, it's actually pretty good. I think it's the problem is that municipalities don't control the growth rate. Developers control the growth rate. Supply and demand controls the growth rate. We can't, mm-hmm. we can't not permit someone to develop something on lands that they have. Right. And the fact of the matter is there's tons of stuff out there that's, that's zoned that can be developed. Developers will not flood the market when times are lean. They, want it, they will not flood the market because they don't want prices to come down. They'll only put stuff on the market when they think there's a demand. And the fact of the matter, supply and demand drives it. We can help manage it and say, okay. Um, yeah, because ultimately you guys control the zoning. We do, but so much is zoned out there, mm-hmm. right? The oceanfront was zoned. We, we finalized the zoning in our term, but it was zoned. Waterfront landing was zoned. We rezoned it actually to less than what the previous zone had. Mm-hmm. But Red Point was mostly rezoned. It's now called Red Bridge. Um, Scott Crescent. So, I mean, there's pieces. The other thing, too, is if you don't have enough zoned land out there, then one or two developers have a monopoly on it. And then they really control the supply side of things and could really drive things up. So if you stop zoning land, you're not actually uh, creating more development. You're just creating more people that can develop. Therefore, ideally, a little more competition and a little bit more, you know, help with it. So you can't just turn it off because then that puts all the control in a, a small handful of, of landowners. Yeah. And, and obviously you don't want any monopolies going on. You want, you want, you want that, you know, diverse needs to be met. So mm-hmm. like, uh, like affordable housing. You want competition essentially. Well, you want competition, but then, you know, then you have the affordable housing issue, how mm-hmm. there's a lack thereof. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of people who need to work in town and, and those who can work in town can't afford to live here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then rental properties, our rental market is at 0.3%, I think was the last number I saw. What was it? 0.0 for a long, long time. Well, it, you know, <laughs> popped up a couple of buildings on Loggers Lane. So, I mean, yeah, the development is fast and they're going to build based on what so they want. So just a, Loggers Lane's not purpose-built rental. Oh, I'm sorry. That it's all stratified. The The okay. developer just decided to not sell the units so he can control it. It's all stratified. But purpose-built rental is a problem. So we have three purpose-built rental buildings in the entire community. Mm-hmm. Um, two of them are very old buildings, and, so, um, and one of them is a relatively new building. But we only have three of them. My first term, there was a whole bunch of applications to stratify rental buildings. That's when the Westway apartments and townhomes were stratified because they were purpose-built rental. And so council of the day all of a sudden went, oh, all these apartments are going to want to be stratified. We need to put in policy that we don't stratify them anymore. Okay. Legislatively, if something's in the pipe, we can't, uh, it's very difficult for a municipality to all of a sudden bring something in that changes the rules midway through. You just open yourself up to lawsuits. So you have to be careful. So I think back then there was there was an apartment building in Dentville that was stratified. So went from purpose built to stratification. So individual ownership of each apartment building. Westway did that as well. And then we said, no more, we're not. So that's the current policy is we don't stratify purpose built rental, mm-hmm. period. Now with the tool with the provincial government, when you can actually zone things rental, we can actually use that to go in and ensure that the zoning, you actually have to go through a zoning uh, change in order to actually change it out of purpose-built rental. The challenge with not having a lot of purpose-built rental is um, most of our rental, so most of our housing for, or for workers, people who work here, is privately owned. So it's a suite in a house. Right. It's um, Someone has a condo and they rent it out. 
And the vulnerability there, of course, is as soon as you get a lot of demand side, you have rent evictions, you have jacking up of, of prices. And so you don't have that control that you have with a lot of purpose-built rentals. So council did do a whole bunch of policy. We actually rezoned a piece of our land to actually build our own purpose-built rental with BC Housing. BC Housing is putting a mortgage on it uh, to actually increase the supply of purpose-built rental because you have some control and some stabilization of the rental market that way. Yeah, that was a big issue, a hot topic issue, this one. And a lot of the questions have, has the district done enough at this point to sort of facilitate for the rental market? I mean, there, and there's a lot of ways you can go about it. Like, took off the DCCs for, for people building in suites. Now there's been talk about going after Airbnbs. There's, well, careful legislation at Airbnbs mm -hmm. because we've seen the models in Tofino where you, you say no and then all of a sudden people just take their, their, their real estate off the market totally. Do you think there's enough uh, going forward with the new council to, to help sort of propagate uh, affordable housing and rental units? We, as a council, probably did more than 90% of the municipalities out there in terms of that. We embedded it uh, for the first three years of our CAC uh, community many contribution strategy 75% of all those CACs from developers went into an affordable housing reserve. Every development has to put a certain amount of purpose built, a certain amount of market rental into the pool. We've just augmented that percentage now. We started at 5%, we're now closer to 10, 20% for those two things. So we put a piece of land forward for the helping hands. We put a million dollars into that project. That's 44 purpose built rental units. We waived fees and a variety of things, and through the Sea to Sky Hospital District I was chair of, we helped uh, facilitate Sea to Sky Community Services building their purpose-built rental. Mm -hmm. So we've done a ton. Compared to most municipalities, we've moved the dial a lot. The other thing, too, is that we're not unique. This housing pressure goes from Hope to Victoria mm -hmm. to Pemberton. We're not unique. It was the conversation in literally 33 different municipalities in the Lower Mainland Fraser Valley for the election. The number one issue in everybody's community was affordability of housing and availability of, of rental. We're, we're not unique. <laughs> well, that's true. I, I mean, when you look, I look back at the elections and I look, I talked to my friends in Lower Mainland, like, what was the big issue down there? Like housing, housing, mm -hmm. housing. We're a little unique in, in regards to where we're located. I mean, we do have a resort up up top that's we have desperate for people. For sure. and, and we have the people commuting all the time. And it's one of those things where with all the development, people are talking about a diversification of economy as well. They're talking about how do we bring business to Squamish? And, yep. But the thing is, where do we put it? Where's the space? Yep. And and so, yeah, we, we do share a lot of commonalities with all of the, with affordable housing, but we, we are in an interesting location geographically to sort of like a lot of the issues are arising. So like I said, with the diversification of the, of the economy, like we want to bring, like a lot of candidates are saying, let's bring in business here. And it's like, well, where are you, where are you going we to We had the that? largest business growth ever in Squamish in the last four years. There's still lots of lots to go, but we, we have the most square footage of, of employment space in the last 20 years that's happened in the last three years. Um, you look at the business park. The challenge with building is it takes from a developer to get a piece of land and to to give keys to tenants, it's a three to three, four year process. Mm -hmm. You think like that whole block uh, north of um, of Commercial Way, the, so where all the gyms are with a climbing gym, that right. was done in this term. That entire block of stuff that's going in there, the whole, we, you know, um, there's tons, the stuff right at, across from Tim Hortons on the highway, the pieces along Queensway, that was all built in the last three years. Tremendous amount. You look at West Coast outbuildings moving into 89,000 square feet. 
that had sat empty for a number of years in the North Yards. I worked ha hand in glove with them to get their, to help them get their lease with BC, BC Rail Properties. And they, I was talking to Jeff uh, the other day, and he's like, we're putting ads on Mountain FM going, are you commuting to the city and you're in the trades? We will hire you at the same rate, and you will save two hours in your commute time every right. day, and you won't have to pay gas, and, you know, it's well worth So they just literally just hired 10 people last week. They could hire 50 or 60 tomorrow mm -hmm. if they can find the people. So the job creation is happening the diversification and these are manufacturing you know trades manufacturing jobs 24 7 in all weather conditions because they're building prefabricated homes i think this is sort of the wave of the future in in home building indoors in a ninety thousand square foot building i could the list goes on we've been working you know carbon engineering came to squamish they, they employ 40 plus engineers and scientists and skills people and they, they're going to uh, if everything goes as planned as we've been working with the province and variety of other entities UBC the the um, mechanisms for job creation and in a diversity of fields is happening tremendously you can't correct something overnight right. but I think we've actually done a tremendous amount and if we actually get the numbers together you know this you know and I think you can always do better what you realize in community economic development, I hate to say it, but Jeff Cook's plan to, I'm going to go after businesses with 10 to 7 employees. It's not a, stra it's not a strategy. It's a random thought. <laughs> well, I, I and our economic development department is actually doing a ton of work and in collaboration with a lot of other businesses like the Chamber and the tur Tourism and BIA and They've done a phenomenal amount of work. I'm going to put more pressure on Kat Mulligan to come back on and do another podcast. I, I saw her. I saw her her presentation at the Chamber of Commerce, and the amount of work they've done has been extraordinary. Extraordinary. She's I, doing I a great job. I would love her. See more pressure for you to come on the podcast. Yeah, she, I got a. Um, I have to. I have to technically. The mayor is technically okay. And I got a request yesterday, I think, from you yesterday to speak nice. to Kate. So, yeah. <laughs> I said, yeah, no problem. I'm, I'm of the mind that uh, our staff, absolutely, they're smart. We have, I, I, I chaired the BC Mayor's Caucus this year, and I talked to a lot of mayors and councillors all over the province. I actually had hosted the BC Mayor's Caucus here in Squamish. They all go, how do you have such a thriving community, thriving business community? Like, believe it or not, we're anomalous in BC in terms of our job growth. Mm -hmm. Are, we're the envy of most places in terms of, of that. And, and we like to complain about it, but we're actually the envy. They're envious of our, our young, smart staff. I know anytime our staff go out to talk about it, and we've, we, we, our staff go all over the place, all over the province, talking about our policies because they're best practice. Because I spoke yesterday at a, at a health conference about the work we've been doing with, uh, with bringing a health lens to our policies and how we build our built environment and stuff. So we do that all the time, and they always want to steal our staff. We've got young, smart, phenomenal that's, that's staff. That's what I said during the campaigns. I said, one, like we need to treat the staff like gold because they've been absolutely awesome. Yep. Uh, and I've also said, too, when people talk about bringing in business, and I think I brought this up with other candidates that brought up, like, we need to bring in business. And I said, well, what about the business already here? I mean, is there something we can do to yep. help them grow? Is absolutely. There, is there certain things that can make them grow even further because I think we do have a brain trust here yeah. uh, a lot of them commute and that's the only issue so it's, it's creating a dynamic where or where we have the business that are here growing at a pace that they can start hiring within absolutely I think that's the one thing that I think was lacking particularly in a couple of the responses the mayors were making is 
and Susan and Karen were certainly saying this, community economic development is founded on growing your existing businesses. Tapping into those entrepreneurs that are always starting something, making sure that they can find the labor they need, they can find the businesses they need, they have the supports in terms of skills training and stuff that they need to survive. That's the best and easiest and most productive way to grow your economy. To pro- and, well, they're and already here a, and committed, right? So yeah, And that's a foundational piece to what our economic development group does. Every economic development expert will tell you, running after, going out and trying to entice businesses to come to your town, it just simply doesn't work. If a business is going to be interested, they'll come to you, and you have to make sure you have the right information, the right strategy, the right messaging, and the right uh, facilities for them to come and and mm-hmm. you know, they have to see their success in. And that's how West Coast Outbuildings came here. You know, they weren't looking at Squamish. They started to look at Squamish, but we did a lot of hand-holding and working with them for them to go, oh, yeah, I can see myself being successful in Squamish. Right. And they moved their whole business up here. So that's, you know, and I, I don't take credit for that. Kate did a ton of work on that. Um, I think you have to build on, you know, ten, five, ten years ago, they wouldn't even looked at Squamish. We knew when the Highway Improvement Project went in with the Olympics mm-hmm. that that was going to be the opening up of the pipe. We knew that there would be a hangover after the Olympics for two to four years. took four, not two. We knew that hangover was going to be there. Everything they said was going to happen with the Highway Improvement Project and the Olympics happened exactly how they said it was going to happen. <laughs> the Olympics, was that a benefit for Squamish? Apart from the highway, of course, the, the widening of the highway, it made, uh, I, I remember the before and after highway. Actually, I, I remember the, the before I moved away, and then every time I came back to visit, like, this highway is nice now. This is awesome. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of development that came up in Whistler and in Vancouver. Uh, they were, we were promised a rink at some point for the Special Olympics or an extra sheet of ice, and it didn't happen. I mean, overall, was the Olympic experience good for Squamish? You know, there's always a negative and a positive with, with these kinds of things. I think overall, yes, it was. It certainly put a, you know, a, a focus on Squamish. It certainly, the highway was, not the Olympics, but the highway was the catalyst for people moving to Squamish. Uh, and some people think that's a bad thing because we have a lot of commuters. And some people think it's a good thing because we have a lot of entrepreneurs and people in the prime of their working life coming here. Mm-hmm. You look at somewhere like um, like Mississauga. So Mississauga 30 years ago was the suburbs. And it was a place people were kind of moving out of Toronto. It was getting expensive in the 80s. And people were moving out. They were populating Mississauga. They were populating Etobicoke. They were populating um, Scarborough. Mississauga really saw it as how do we attract the talent? Right. How do we get the really smart people to come here? Scarborough and Etobicoke didn't ne- necessarily take that approach. Mississauga did. Well, what's happening today with Mississauga? Well, it's the second largest city in the country now. It has all the he- a lot of the head offices are moving out to Mississauga because that's where their employees are. That's where their talent is. Right. So the the head offices will move out and follow the talent. When I was involved in a bunch of startups, um, sort of like these, you're starting to see like the Common and Align Collective. I was involved with one of those in the early 2000s. Uh, it was a conglomerate of uh, shared office space, and we we supported each other and worked with each other. One of them was an R&D company, a tech com- company, and it was almost impossible to attract people up here because we didn't have the critical mass of other companies so that if this one, it was during the tech boom, so if this one failed, they they could go and work for this one. We just didn't have that critical mass of talent or the critical mass of businesses that people could say, oh, I could move there and reliably be able to stay there for as long as I want to stay there. 
we have that now. We have that critical mass of people that people go, oh, there's enough talent up there that I can move my business up there and attract people that I need to grow my business. Where do you see that tipping point to, to get that critical mass? My, it would be when the gondola arrived. I, my, my father jokingly says the reason why we had such an influx of people moving to Squamish is because when the gondola was built, people would drive up from Maple Ridge, they get on top of the gondola and be like, it's beautiful up here. It only took me like 25 minutes when it takes me 45 minutes to get in the city. That's yeah. ridiculous. I'm going to move up here. I'm not sure. I think it was a the gondola certainly had a, a lot to do with creating the tourism. I don't know. It would be interesting to ask people if they moved here because they went up the gondola. I'm not sure you'd get that many. Mm-hmm. But I think generally it gave an impression out there to the world. That live at Squamish or Squamish Valley Music Festival mm-hmm. totally changed people's perceptions of Squamish in a global, you know, outside of our boundaries kind of context so i think all those things sort of happened at the same time mm-hmm. um and the olympics was just before that so i think you just you just build on those things the gondola definitely opened the door for tourism possibilities in squamish and now you can have people renting bikes and kayaks and paddle boards and doing boat tours and doing backcountry there's a lot of tie-ins with a lot of tourism companies here with the gondola yeah, yeah. for sure and um so I think the gondola and they, all the marketing they do just makes Squamish look fabulous. So we, that, but I, I, I'd be interesting to actually ask people who have moved here in the last five years, did you move here because you went up the gondola and looked down? You know, I don't, I just <laughs> don't know the That's my father's theory. Yeah. It, it, it's just one of those things. I don't know anyone re- who's moved here in the last five years that did that. So <laughs> well, it's because it was like, it's, it's just so easy to come up the highway now. And the commute time was easy, and the, mar- or the market at that time was not as expensive as Vancouver. Yep. And so it was easier to move up here at that time. And we that was the time where you are saying, where we like the taps turned on to 6%. Because mm-hmm. everyone's realizing, wow, it's beautiful up here. It's easy to come up yep. here. It's not it's 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 not what I thought it used to be. Yep. Before, it used to be just the McDonald's on the highway up to Whistler. Filled now, up with gas. And, yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. I was, at, I was speaking at a conference yesterday morning. I was talking to someone, and they said, you drove down from Squamish this morning? And I'm like, it was 50 minutes. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> It wasn't very long. They're like, oh, I came out for Surrey and it took me an hour and 20. And exactly. I'm like, yeah, well, that's, people are discovering that. And then you're that much closer to skiing and and we have a pretty good lifestyle up here. I mean, I, when I moved here in 1993, I was, for me, it was a no-brainer. Like, this is, you're so close to the city, yet yep. you, you're in a different world. I moved here in 98 and it was the same thing. I was working in Whistler and I was DJing at Whistler in Vancouver. And it just made sense to be in Squamish in the middle of it. And I was actually quite surprised at that time that wasn't recognized as a place to be. I mean, if you're a ski bum and you work in the city, it'd be a great place to be. But then you had those those obstacles. You had the highway and you had, didn't really have the, the housing issues. And there's a lot of other things. So You it, had, I mean, um, the fact of the matter is I remember I first moved here and the pulp mill was closed down. And I was like, how can people not understand that this is phenomenal? The pulp mill opened up in about March of that year. And I went, right, there is something that is keeping people from moving here and it's not the people it was the smell in the air yeah it was awful um i was shocked at how bad it was um i i've recalled this story before i was um reading a book called hardcore uh, logo which is uh remember the movie bruce mcdonald's movie yep. hardcore logo yep. well this was by the playwright who who or the screenwriter who wrote that and he was writing a book about what's it like to make a movie in canada back in the 90s and mm-hmm. they, he was talking about a time when they all sort of sat around and got drunk and decided to write the fake discography of the punk band that's in the movie, right? So I think it was like 
disc two or disc one and like the second or third song was she told me to kiss me where it stinks so i drove her to squamish <laughs> nice in parentheses and i went yeah that and that 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 was the perception or the image yeah. problem it kept people out and and i think at the time the town struggled with um how do we invite people in to make sure we're 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 resilient we're sustainable but at the same time knowing that that would change just because the nature of all the recreation here and the proximity to the city and all of a sudden if, if Squamish did get discovered it would change the vernacular here mm-hmm. it would change it has um, it's quite I w- I'd say um, it went it went through an identity crisis I think mm-hmm. when, when the mill shut down there was a big identity crisis and then now it's uh, it's it's now it's, it is what it is um, well and that's why we did the branding program last term was like we need to um, clearly articulate what our story is now and our story is forged in forestry and farming and mining with Britannia Beach. It, like that's all foundational and formative in who we are today. But who are we today? Who are the people of today? What is the potential for tomorrow? And that was the branding process. It wasn't about choosing a logo and choosing a, a tagline. That's like 1%. It's about who we are. What is our story? Mm-hmm. How do we take pride in that story? How do we articulate that in our built environment, in our public art, in the signs in how we communicate as a district with our people and how we how we uh, communicate and work with our first nations like it became a whole identity evolving process and i think it was bizarrely almost too successful <laughs> <laughs> well i mean if you're talking let's talk we're talking about wood fiber and we're talking about identity of course i have to bring up this topic about lng mm-hmm. Um, I, I think when when you ran uh, for your last term, it was it was on a kind of like a no LNG sort of platform. And would you say that LNG now is kind of a, a foregone conclusion? They're they're here and they're here to stay. I think it's totally in the hands of world economic uh, influences, and the decision is with them to decide if there's a viable business there or not. For, and I I wouldn't say I ran on an anti LNG platform. Um, I don't think you should ever run on one issue. It's certainly topical, certainly influenced and uh, informed who was elected and how. But I never ran on a vote for me. I'm anti-LNG because I know this job is much more diverse than that. Yeah, of course. But it did dominate the first year and a half. The environmental assessment process dominated the first year and a half. We decided to do quite a bit of public engagement. It was actually quite time-consuming. We had tons of meetings. Uh, with council, we had some permitting issues with Fortis going through the estuary. So it was very topical and took up a lot of time. We had a community committee that we had experts coming in to speak to it. And then that community committee would come out and tell those things to the council and the town. And it was a, it was a big distraction. And those types of big issues are challenging in, for a community. They're very divisive and that they can overshadow some of the other really good opportunities and things we should be focusing on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really up to them. I mean, they have a 13 or 14 year contract with uh, 50% with Jap- Japan, 50% with China. You think they're making a 1.2 or $3 billion investment for only 13 years of selling gas. I would have thought they would have wanted longer contracts, but right. I, who am I to know? This, uh, this explosion up near Prince George is interesting in how vulnerable our supply lines, our supply yeah. chains are that it can almost cripple our, our domestic delivery of natural gas. And they think there's, you know, that for a while there, there was going to be, you're not going to have any gas in some parts of the province because of this one explosion on this one line. 
So I think this has been an, an awakening moment for the province going, we need to create some redundancies and some predictability mm-hmm. in, in these supply chains. And I think some of the exporters are going, particularly because it does affect what would be getting to uh, WLNG, they're kind of going, oh, yeah, if the pro- province needs to invest in redundancies here so we don't have these. Because Fortis's their mandate is delivery to BC residents. Right. And so in a situation where supply gets gets minimized, export would just shut, close down. Right. Well, that would make sense. I mean, or, you know, it's one of those us first mentality. It's one of our natural resources. If we need it, then we should be using it. Yep. Um, if you were going into the negotiation room now, if you were, if you ran and reelected, mm-hmm. which you know, if, I think if you did ran, you would have been reelected. Incumbents usually tend to get in there. Just saying. Um, you know, <laughs> I wasn't worried. I, to be honest, I wasn't worried about that. Um, I thought it would be re- reelected too. Uh, that wasn't why I, I like. I, I, just, I had m- mitigating things. I that just I had just, to throw that in there. Yeah, thank you. If, if you were getting into the uh, to the the negotiating room now mm-hmm. uh, with LNG, what what do you think we should be doing as, as Squamish? So if when the new guys get in there or Karen gets in there yep. with some of our council, what what should be our stance? Well, I think uh, the, even people who are supportive of LNG are supportive because of the potential tax revenue. So if there isn't a good deal from a tax revenue point of view for the district, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. There are some jobs with this, but not not we're not talking hundreds of jobs. We're talking 80 to 100 jobs maybe locally. Yeah. That's what West Coast Outbuildings is going to have. That's what carbon engineering is getting to. You know, like that's what, you know, so it's it's not a huge amount of jobs. Mm-hmm. Wood fiber itself had closer to 400. So the jobs are maybe nice, but really it's the tax revenue that you can get from a large heavy industrial. Because of the uncertainty about its longevity into the future, my recommendation is you want to get what you can and it has to be substantial. Like this is, this, it has to be, there has to be money up front for capital projects and we've done a whole facilities and real estate master plan and every master plan you could possibly outline, we've got a lot of things we can spend this money on, whether mm-hmm. it's dikes or arenas or soccer fields or fire halls. art centers or fire halls or whatever it is, we have a list. Mm-hmm. So that we, ha- we need some upfront and we need to figure out what a yearly revenue stream would be to the city. My recommendation, and we talked about this last, last term, is don't put any of those funds into your regular operational um, accounting of things and your re- regular operational budget. Because what happened with wood fiber in 2006, and we're still recovering today, is it was a $1.8 million reduction in our taxes overnight. Basically, the tap. Back then, our budget was, I think, $17, $18 million. $2 million on $18 million is... Substantial. Substantial. At the same time, we were faced with going from 70 to 90% of RCMP costs, which was another million bucks or something. I can't remember the exact number. Mm-hmm. You think that double? So we fought like crazy, and we actually pushed out. Um, we were fourteen thousand nine hundred and fifty-one or something. So we were just under the RCMP, even though the province wanted to push us over fifteen thousand. We pushed back so that we didn't have to have that cumulative effect of both wood fiber closing and having the added increase in RCMP right. in one year. Those are extenuating circumstances a municipality has no control over. So my recommendation was take if there is let's say let's say five to seven million dollars of revenue a year from from WLNG. They're only offering two million. So we're, we're, I think what our expectation and what WLNG's expectations are still quite far apart. Yeah. However, let's say five million dollars for sake of argument. I would take that five million dollars. I would say X amount goes into reserves. X amount goes into paying off. Uh, debt and X amount goes into capital projects. At the beginning, you might want to put some more into capital projects. You might want to get the, the, the a new fire hall built, 
you might want to get you know a new arena you know you might want to do that but ultimately there should be a strategy where it's either going into reserves paying off debt or paying off capital projects and none of that revenue actually gets put into the regular operating stream you look at places like Dawson Creek and I've had quite a few conversations with Mayor Bumstead up there or Fort St. John they have a they get what they call a fair share uh, from the gas revenue up there so the pre- provincial government gives them like 10 or 15 million dollars I can't remember the exact amount when they first got that they just stuck it in their operational budget well fair share is only a share of what's actually being created mm-hmm. so as as provincial revenues go down so will the fair share and all of a sudden you have this ex- externality affecting your day-to-day operational budget right right and they're like how do we make up millions of dollars you start counting on that money yeah you start counting on you start building all your services and your infrastructure because you think you have all this revenue and you can very easily in 12 13 years and that's a blink not have that revenue overnight and all of a sudden you have a five million dollar hole in your budget so that would be my recommendation to the Mm. next council none of it goes to operational and you focus on capital either building the assets that we need to get built or putting money away Speaking of assets that need to be built, uh, another big topic that popped up during the election was Brennan Park. I I heard one candidate basically say, we're just going to lipstick it. And then there's others that say, well, I'm going to put in a second ice sheet in there. We're going to do corporate things. We're going to do this and do that and everything. Do you think, because you mentioned if you take money from LNG and we put it into a capital cost thing, the numbers that were were brought up for Brennan Park, is it really that, that expensive? Or like, are we talking about tens of millions of dollars here or it can can it be you know lipstick the entire uh, wish list is a lot of money yeah and you can't you just simply can't do it all at once right now i think what what we've done that i think sets this next council up for success is we've done all our homework so to be successful in grants you have to have a comprehensive strategy and some analysis of what that's going to cost you have to have community engagement to make sure you have that support and that need and you um have to have it in your work plan it has to be part of your strategic plan has to be part of your five-year financial plans so now that we've done all these master plans including brennan park centennial fields and we actually can now go and we're all we're ready to go for grants if we had tried to put a grant in on brennan park two three four five years ago we would just simply be rejected we would mm. not get the money we've done all our homework and we're one of the fastest growing communities in canada i think there's a, a compelling argument that we will actually be successful in these fundings we're starting to see it now we just got 3.9 million for our dikes because we have probably the most comprehensive integrated flood hazard management plan in the province mm-hmm. and the province goes geez they've done their homework they've done their analysis they've got their priority projects and their work plan they are actively working towards it this is money well spent from the provincial or federal point of view we've done all that homework we've literally done every master plan stormwater, liquid waste, solid waste, landfill, fire master plan, wildfire interface strategy, like economic development strategy. Like we've done literally yeah. everything. So we've created the groundwork for success, I think. Which is which is great. I mean, it's funny how elections, everything sounds like is is, is doom and gloom, whereas <laughs> a lot of homework has been done. I, and I'm familiar yeah. with a lot of the homework we've done. I mean, I know Some of the of candidates were saying, oh, actually, no, they've done a really good job. We, yeah. we actually can build on, on a solid foundation now. We inherited a really bad foundation. And I don't blame previous councils. Mm-hmm. You had different priorities and different strat- you know, different people at the table and different capacity within staff. Right. I really give a ton of credit to our staff. We could never have accomplished 
the amount of policy work and infrastructure work. We redid the whole section of Cleveland Avenue along one uh, along Pavilion Park. Um, you know, we we did a ton of stuff. We did well, intersection in, improvements in Brackendale, and yeah. you know, we did a lot of work. Well, generally, all politicians blame. The, the following administration for all their issues. It's, it's just one of those things that politicians tend to do. Uh, and so you, you'll find candidates or you'll find uh, people now saying, well, we, this was left as a mess. And even though it maybe it has not been, it's just usually... I challenge any of the people who get in now to say that they've inherited a mess. I actually think they... It's, I mean, maybe I'm biased. <laughs> a little. But And I don't blame previous uh, administrations. I mean, in the 90s, councils were focused on keeping the mills open. They had, and that should have been a priority, you know, like that was a huge amount of effort to, to do that. In the 90s was the first time they even hired a planner in Squamish. You know, you just had different imperatives. Right. In the 70s, you built infrastructure, like the amount of rebuilding of roads because a road base was made with, with stu- wood stumps cost today's taxpayers a ton of money. But that's how stuff was done back right. then. I don't actually blame people in the 70s or 80s, 90s or 2000s. It's just the way things were and, and the sophistication of government, of local government, of of the regulations that direct us. It's just a changed world. I don't blame future uh, previous entities because it's an evolution, right? <laughs> it is an evolution. It's just, that's what it is. I, it's just, it's, I just find it funny how every time there's a new new party in town or somebody else is in charge, they always seem to like, oh, well, this was not my fault. It was from the previous. It's, yeah. It just seems to be a common... We love to take credit for things that previous people have done but we don't like to we like to blame them too well from what my understanding is that there's going to be a lot of be, a lot of credit been taken from uh, from this new group from all the work that's been done and, and this new group is going to look I think because <laughs> we've done all the homework yeah. uh, we've done all the analysis of how and where and when a new firehouse should be strategically done and it's based on projected growth in different areas like where you put a new fire hall and the reason why we stalled the the renovation, the complete renovation of the fire hall at Garibaldi was, is that the right location? Do we want to spend two, three million more dollars on this location when really in 10 years from now, we want one a little bit south of here and we want another one a little bit north of here. So one of the reports was coming back and saying, we're going to want to have three fire halls in the next 10, 12, 15 years. So why would we spend X amount of millions of dollars to fix up something Let's stabilize it. Let's make sure it doesn't fall down in an earthquake. Looks pretty steampunky, but it's actually mm-hmm. more solid than it was probably the day it was built. It was never built well. So now it's solid. It's not going to fall down. Now we want to think, do we spend two, three million dollars there making it look pretty? Or do we actually go, okay, you know what? We, we should put one further south, maybe just south of Canadian Tire. And then ultimately we want to have one in Brackendale for example. And then our response times, we're covering all our areas better and we can make sure everybody's insurance in town is gets a better rate because we have right. better response times. It's not a simple equation. This is going to be a tough decision for this next council in terms of exact timing of when they start to build new. And if you build a new one just south, maybe you keep that Garibaldi one open a little bit longer because maybe you don't need the one in Brackendale for eight years until the you know the Chicago right. fan development. This, these are going to be tough decisions for this new council because it's not as easy as, well, 
I can't believe they just didn't fix that fire hall. Well, we, we <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I guess you've been seeing all the vitriol on the, on the social media as well. No, I don't go on social you media. Don't, don't go on social media at all. Uh, Cause there was, there was a lot of talk and I think, I think I, a lot of, a lot of the new council or uh, old council took a lot of flack, I think on social media with, with the, in terms of uh, the, the social media uh, warriors, I call them keyboard mm-hmm. warriors mm-hmm. because you know, if, Facebook is faceless, so yeah. people get to say what they like. Mm-hmm. This new group will definitely have a tough time in regards to uh, that sort of flack that they're getting. Mm-hmm. Did, did you feel there was a lot of uh, vitriol near the end of your term than there usually would be? Or yeah, I I tried when I first became mayor, and I as a counselor, I you know I dabbled in the social media, and mostly it was I would go on there to just provide context and information for people to have a so at least they're debating the facts and not making them up. So. As I became mayor, it's such an all-consuming job being mayor. And I, I about two months in, um, it was I was a Saturday, and I got stuck on some, you know, ninety response blog under some post that was just preposterous. And I sat here and I typed up a response, and I was getting myself. And I'm all of a sudden I went, I just spent two and a half hours on a Saturday, and I don't get a lot of Saturdays free mm. as the mayor on something that is inane. And I thought, you know what? If I'm going to survive four years of being mayor, I need to not do social media. Our staff does social media. They get information out there. They would always, if if there was a real flare-up issue that needed correction or needed dealing with, staff would monitor that and we'd discuss it and and put a response on our social media. But I just sound for my own personal sanity and for my own personal having a, a, a private life outside of this, I needed to just say no. So I, I, I literally don't go on. I hear about some of the awful things right. and untruths and absolute lies and slander that goes on. And every once in a while, you know, some would say, you have to go on and read this. And I'd read it and I just roll my eyes. Yeah. Like, you can you believe though, like a small town like this gets involved in politics like that though? This was like everywhere. Yeah. It was Sunshine Coast. I was talking to people over there. Every mission, there was crazy social media everywhere and i think for unfortunately it doesn't build trust in the democratic process it actually erodes it mm-hmm. people are anonymous there's trolls mm-hmm. just complete fat a lot of the people who are attacking out there aren't even people they're fake people that people with vested interests in money or land or whatever are creating their own purposes and a lot of them are fake so are you saying like or fueling the other people's stuff so then uh, i guess one thing for the new council to do is sort of get out there and, and create bigger channels of communication greater ch- to basically get the truth out there or somehow um i don't know, sort of diffuse this because it, it seemed it was all consuming how some of the, some of the candidates were uh, were attacked and how some of your, le- your but you look who got elected some of the doug grace and karen elliott were brutally attacked on social media and well, they topped the polls. One, one, one thing they got really attacked on was Garibaldi Springs. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because it's one thing where they talk about the OCP and this is great, it's award-winning, and then uh, you know, a vote like the, the Garibaldi Springs sort of doesn't help with the vitriol either because people just saw that as, well, we just have an OCP. Now you just sign the Garibaldi Springs. So there was so much misinformation about that. Yeah. And the people spreading the misinformation know that they're spreading misinformation. So with the Garibaldi Springs, when it first came up, oh gosh, almost three years ago now, two and a half years ago. Council had a conversation. Staff brought it and said, we have this big application. We're we're just entering the OCP process. And Garibaldi Springs wasn't the only one. Chi well, Guy Fan, there was a whole few, bunch. Yeah. There was a bunch of big uh, applications that were in process 
as we went into the OCP and council very, very clearly said, we're going to go through the whole OCP process and all these other ones will go through a separate OCP process to deal with those things. So we didn't deliberate on Chikai Fan in the overall OCP process. We took some of the inputs that were part of that and brought it to that one. Mm-hmm. But we, it was very clear right up in the beginning that they were going to go through their own, uh, their, their own specific OCP process. It's actually a more open way to do it because if these things were just sort of smushed into a big process, they can actually get lost. But these big land use decisions, we said, right. let's pull them out and put a lens on it and allow people to comment specifically on that. You break down the Garibaldi Springs one, and, you know, there's supposedly, um, well, there was a petition for X amount of people. I know tons of people who signed that petition, and they signed it when Garibaldi Springs first came about, and they signed it when which it was incarn- 750 which, which, units. Which incarnation? Exactly. So, yeah. you know, they signed it when it was 750 units, and they were basically building on every fairway in the project. And by the end, they were like, actually, this is actually a great way to preserve sensitive habitat in perpetuity. One thing I've learned is that land ownership is patient. They wait for the next group to get in or they wait for the economic downturn and then they'll pounce. When you have the opportunity to do something, you have to seize it. And if you don't, you're leaving it to hope and a prayer in the future. Right. And so when you're faced with a decision, you go, I could make a decision today. I can, I can, this, you know, there's a consequence to it. Yes, there's going to be 300 some odd ha- homes. I actually think there's going to be less because once the actual environmental uh, review comes back, I bet you they're going to actually be less than 300. Either way, they can build up to 310. But we're preserving 84% of this land in perpetuity. And mm-hmm. it's and it's covenanted and it's going to be productive habitat. It'll take 200 years for those fairways to get back to productive habitat if we just let nature do its course. Or we can actually speed that up and get that back into productivity in two or three years, which is huge. It's, right. it's a huge, it's a carbon sink. It's a, there's a whole bunch of value-added pieces. The compromises, in order to pay for all that, in order to make it happen, you have some housing. It solves transportation issues. I mean, I, you know, there's, I think if it really had been the definitive issue of the election, Karen Elliott wouldn't be the new mayor and Doug Grace wouldn't be on council. Yet they top the polls. Mm-hmm. So that's the challenge with social media is you can have two or three vitriolic, very loud people and people start to think that the loudest is the most. And that's often not the case. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I, I want to show off my six, six, my six picks for council is on council, so I'm, I'm good with that. I, I'm, I'm not surprised. I, I was, uh, I thought Jenna would is a smart young woman, and I'm, yeah. I thought she would get on. She came second, like by a lot. Well, I, I, Doug Race. One of those things where I said about Doug Race, and I, when I interviewed him, is one of those things like you have the other 21 candidates pulling for you just because you're going to be you're the incumbent, and you, they're going to be leaning on you, and they're like, please, Doug Race, please run, please, please. Well, please. I said to Doug, I said. I'm not running. You have to run. <laughs> you have to run. And I, I, I knew Doug would top the polls. He's topped the polls almost every time he's run. He is smart. He's good. He's thoughtful. He And he's the you've only got, incumbent you've a, running. You've got a retired lawyer who has really much district as his focus. Uh, and he's been involved in the trenches he's for smart. many years. He's got the, the experiential sort of uh, history that I brought to council he he's the only one with that left right oh, exactly so i knew he would top the polls i knew he would top but by a lot um i had no doubt he could have not even put a sign up and been okay yeah he put like three i think but yeah <laughs> and he did my podcast thank you thank you Doug, for doing my podcast i mean he, he you have to you have to do that stuff because elections <laughs> are about 
community having a conversation with itself. So, but I knew he would get on. It, one, another issue it was, it was transit and, and transit came up quite a bit and you, you alluded to it having a transit spot. Right now, there's been a bit of delay in, in terms of getting agreement with the First Nations, uh, the memorandum of understanding, yep. a delay there. Do you see inevitably a plan coming to place for, for transit? Because I know you and I've been putting a lot of work into it or your, your mm-hmm. pastor has been a lot of work put into it. And, and Jack uh, is now a mayor who's like, yeah, let's get this done. So do you think now the the pieces are in place to get a, a transit plan into place? Absolutely. I think, you know, we've been, I've been on the SLRD board for 10 years and I remember, gosh, about eight or nine years ago, we went to the province with pretty much what we're going to the province today, saying we need to figure out a way to pay for this, perhaps a motor fuel tax like uh, the CRD, the, the Capital Regional Transit Commission has or TransLink has. So we need to get this going, and the the provincial liberals at the time just didn't wasn't just in their, their shoulders. wasn't in their thing. As soon as um, we uh, so when I became mayor, started pushing it. Whistler wasn't at the table. Ironically, Pemberton was there, SLRD was there, Squamish. We were pushing, pushing, pushing. Whistler, for probably reasons that were valid to them, were just like this isn't a priority for us. So I was trying to get meetings. I had meetings, and Whistler didn't show up to them with the minister of finance, for example, mm-hmm. Minister Dijon, and. And Mr. Stone, understandably, Whistler had other political fights that they were working on and they didn't want to distract from those ones because you only have so much political capital with the province. So uh, ironically, the Whistler wasn't at the table uh, like it like it could have been a couple of years ago. I don't blame them. It's just the reality. Um, now everyone's at the table mm-hmm. and we're trying to do this, you know, with accommodation and truth and reconciliation is foundational piece. We want to do this with our First Nation partners. Right. They want transit. It's a matter of, what, so we have the Lil Watt and Squamish and uh, Pemberton, Whistler, Squamish and um, and the SLRD all trying to work together. You can imagine those conversations are going to be challenging because you're trying to create the foundation of what this commission is going to look like, how and who and when and what's going to pay for it all. Where do you augment service? What are your priorities? Do you have more buses Squamish to Vancouver or... Pemberton or Whistler, like where do you find that balance? So those are tough conversations. It's taken a long time to get to the point where we're all on the same page. And I think the Squamish Nation is is generally there too. I feel for the nation, they they you think about all the referrals they get from the many, many yeah. municipalities that they ha- that their territory encompasses, let alone all the provincial and federal referrals, let alone every every developer and big project out there. I mean, they uh, are just challenged with capacity. They only have a certain amount of staff and they, like, we think we're busy. Oh my gosh, they're yeah. so busy. So I, I feel for them. And so we're trying to pick up some of the workload, but they still have to make thoughtful decisions for their people. And so it, it you know, getting everyone on the same page at the same time just takes time and it takes relationship building. And I think we're there. Yeah, uh, it's one of those things where one of the big issues in Whistler was not, well, of course, the housing was a big one for them as well as, as here, but another one was, was workers, affordable housing, or getting people mm-hmm. to come in and work. And they're, they're, you know, their big thing is that in Mount Curry and, 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 and a few areas like that, they're just people are just begging to come and work. Mm-hmm. And so if you build a transit system where you, know, you can get workers coming in and out. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's probably where 
I think uh, the impetus now is to come to the table and create a whole transit thing. Plus, Jack has been on the SLRD forever. He, I think he understands. He hasn't been on the... It's been six well, years, yeah. Well, in, in political lifetime, six years actually is quite a long time. But it's, it's, He feels like a rookie to me because I've been there two years. <laughs> but I mean, he understands now. I, I think yep. he is a, a grasp of how, how what we need to do or what the area needs to do in terms of getting people moving and moving about. I mean, especially since Greyhound is shutting down or has shut down. Everyone's on that same page. Yeah. Everyone's... The challenge is... There's a whole bunch of processes that need to happen uh, bureaucratically with BC Transit, with the province. You literally have to, we are going so fast right now. I think the worry is we're going to buy into something that we haven't thought out completely and then you're stuck with it. Whether it's a funding model, whether it's a makeup of a board, whether it's um, capital infrastructure pieces, whether it's who pays for what, the province or the municipalities and how we pay for it. It's pretty easy maybe to predict it in the first couple of years, but as soon as you want to expand the service again, how are you going to pay for that? These are big questions. And right now we're, we're moving. So the Transit Future Plan outlined trying to get regional transit in place by fall of 2019. We're trying to meet that goal. To meet that goal, we have to ramp things up dramatically. And we have to make sure everyone's running at the same speed to get there or it can all just crumble in a second, particularly if if the First Nations aren't feeling comfortable or if one of the jurisdictions aren't feeling comfortable. It's a big challenge, but everyone's working towards how do we get this done by next fall? That's sort of the earliest it could even be done because it's got to, you got to, the commission has to get in. Once the commission is, then the, the Minister of Finance can then put in the revenue streams that may be necessary to but that has to go through legislature in the spring and then Mm -hmm. you've got to order your buses and then you have to make sure you have the stops and you have to build your capital infrastructure it's massively ambitious to try to get this done from for a year for now yeah especially if everyone has to do the same everyone has to put in their infrastructure as well and build it on such a level that even if like if squamish is ready to go well whistler needs to be ready to go everyone needs to be have the whole thing built simultaneously and you're you know pemberton has a a five million dollar budget their entire budget's five million bucks how do you find a couple hundred thousand dollars to build you know bus stops or put x amount into operating i think we're trying to create a formula where the first couple of years there aren't any municipal property tax dollars going to this. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge is when you augment the service in year four, or year five, how do you pay for that? Right. Well, and that's where it gets tricky. That's where the for- the foresight comes in and sort of pre-planning and getting things sorted. The gas tax was another, another option that I think has popped up. And w- the motor fuel tax. Motor fuel gas. Yeah. yeah. So we- that's currently the current strategy is that we create a commission. The province puts the tax legislation in place to create a sea to sky motor fuel tax like the TransLink tax, yeah. like the capital region tax. Much less than the TransLink tax. The TransLink tax is seventeen cents. Ours would probably start at five. But yet our four, gas prices are about the same as Vancouver. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I mean, that's the challenge. The conver- you know the community yeah. hasn't had that comprehensive conversation. We're of the mind that local gas stations are just taking advantage of the fact we're kind of like In the an island. We're stuck, yeah. and that they couldn't possibly actually increase our our rates by five cents. And we'd be five cents more than Lower Mainland. That we just wouldn't tolerate that, and they yeah. couldn't do it. So we're we're kind of hoping that, was, that that's that what was, will that happen. That would have been my big concern is that if you put in if you put in the tax, and all of a sudden it's like, all right, we'll just tack it on the price. You know, what else are you going to do about it? Yeah. 
Yeah, and then uh, we'll all be going down to Lower Mainland because it'll actually be cheaper down there. Yeah, <laughs> or up Whistler for that matter. Pemberton and Whistler are cheaper than Squamish. Yeah, and that's and I you did the news story before the election a few months before the election. You were on on CTV News talking mm-hmm. about going to the province, saying, "Hey, what's up? What's going on?" We so need- that was the that was the the uh, the tra- the uh, competition bureau. Yeah, the, yeah. the federal competition bureau. It heard back from them yet? Uh, they interviewed <laughs> me. A couple, I guess a couple months ago now they're yeah. investigating it haven't heard back on there sometimes these investigate like they actually can uh they can do undercover operations they can they can do wiretapping you know like <laughs> they, they can actually do some cool stuff so but these investigations take time to mm. prove couple you know if there's any sort of collusion of any kind and and price fixing they, but they have they did it in kingston they've done it so right well for me it just, it just it seems obvious so i don't know why it would take so much <laughs> i guess to all of us up here in squamish it seems obvious. prove it in court of law is different than to just go yeah this is obvious right, come on everybody's now. the same except for one gas station's one cent less all the time we we're talking about how uh you know uh, the squamish nation and there's been a lot of work with uh, all the different districts and they're sort of overwhelmed I, um is there i guess there's an impetus then to get that intergovernmental accord uh, resigned or fill out another yeah. one. Yeah, so I think we've come a long way with the nation, and so the accord was written back in 2011, I think, 2010, 2011. I think that expired this year. Well, it never. It, we always kept pushing it out a year. It was never actually ratified because it was founded on the as soon as the servicing agreement was done, then the accord would actually become final. What we mutually agreed on this term, uh, as we reread the accord, it was evident that the language was archaic and that mm. the intention and at the time and place in, at which it was negotiated, no longer exists, and the relationship has evolved so much. And you looked at this co- accord, and I think it was great for what it was when, but it was a negotiation. You say yes to this, we'll say yes to this. And some of the language was, you know, we will not agree to any additions to reserve. You know, it was it was a little patronizing. And we we sat down with the nation and went through it and said, you know what? We mutually agree that this accord had its time and place, but we've evolved the the imperatives are different we need to create a whole new language and a whole new um understanding of of what uh truth reconciliation accommodation means in today's context mm-hmm. it's amazing how much has changed even in the six seven years since we signed the accord so it was a mutually agreed upon thing we saw it as actually an evolution of our of our relationship not a de- degradation of our relationship ironically and um, we actually looked at putting a whole truth and reconciliation piece within the OCP. And in our conversations with the nation, they said, you know what, don't put in your OCP. We do, we do have quite a bit of reference to First Nations, but this is sort of the next step of, this is, forms the basis of the next set of agreements and understandings and steps forward between the two, the two governments. So yeah, I think it's actually evolved. We, ha- we have a incredibly strong communication and relationship with the nation i think they respect us our staffs are working together we've taken our whole staff every one of our staff all of our counselors and put them through um, cultural training we did a project with everyone called understanding the village essentially every single member of our staff and council learned what colonialism did learned the effect on the village and the way of life learned the effect of residential school it was a profound experience to bring your whole staff through that and ideally has a a foundational effect within your organization and how they understand and appreciate and work towards reconciliation at the grassroots level within the organization and at the political level so 
Yeah, we've we've come a long way, and I, I I actually think there's so much opportunity to move some mountains with in partnership with the nation. I think we're really privileged to have them as our our local first nations. They're so generous. There's a lot of stuff said during the campaign, and I it, it's by people who don't understand the process, and I think don't appreciate the iterativeness of right. of building relationships. I, I I always said it's the complexity of ecosystems. That's what I used to say. It's people just don't get it how everything is sort of related to one thing. You can't talk about building an economy without talking about housing. You can't mm-hmm. talk about housing if you're talking about workplace. You can't talk. Mm-hmm. It's sort of it's it's, it's so amorphous everything together yep. that it you know you can't do one thing without sort of interfering with the other. And the, the, there is a lot of intricacies I think people are unaware of. You know, Absolutely. The yeah. one thing I, I would hope, though, when, when it came to people with the vitriol, is that the engagement would be higher. Um, 48% is pretty good. for Better than most places. I, I thought, honestly, we'd see a lot higher turnout. But even though, suffice to say, with all the vitriol on, on the Facebook, at least people are engaged. Right? Yep. You're getting at least that, uh, you get that, that dialogue, even though it's sort of inherently misplaced some of it but but looking back on on pretty much your, your career what's what's the big thing you're gonna miss go like see go or finish off with like what's the feather in your cap sort of moment i guess well i was when i first got on council i was motivated by climate change and policy you know like trying to evolve policy and i remember for the first six seven months you know i would be like we need more bike lanes we our transit needs to be better and we should be diverting waste from the landfill and recycling inorganics and we should be buying more efficient, a whole bunch of different things. And, you know, unless you have the policy pieces to sort of make those decisions intuitive for everybody, you just don't get anywhere. And people go, well, that just costs more money or what do you, you know, that's not part of the plan next. And so about, about took about seven, eight, nine months and I was starting to think, okay, what, what I'm missing is I'm just throwing one-offs out there. What I'm missing is that high-level policy piece that starts to drive and move the dial. Mm-hmm. And I was at a conference, and uh, it was at a Fraser Basin Council conference. I actually sit on the Fraser Basin Council now. So I was sitting there, and they said, just if you can take one thing away from this conference, just go back and do one thing. I said, okay, I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to take one thing back to council. And I was reading up a lot, and I was reading about the mayor of Seattle had brought in a 12-step climate action pledge. And I read it, and I'm like, that really forms the foundation of 90% of the stuff I'm trying to move forward. And so I sort of rewrote my own version of the 12 step pledge and in it, all the different 12 steps, I, I like literally listed the initiatives that could be driven by uh, trying to work towards that pledge, that mm-hmm. goal within the pledge. You know, I listed waste diversion, organic and I listed transit and active transportation augmentation, better building efficiency, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And I remember uh, at, it was unanimously passed by council. And I remember at the time staff coming up to me going, thank you for that because we needed that policy piece to then for us to be able to come back and go, hey, we should do this or we need to start counting our doing our carbon. And a year later, the province came and said, asked all the municipalities to sign on to the climate action charter. So we were already sort of well there. underway there. Yeah. So. And now we finally became carbon neutral in my final year. <laughs> Took us a while to get there, but we've done it in a way, and we've also made our own carbon, a community carbon marketplace. So we can take those property tax dollars and put them back into local companies who are off, who are certified, legitimately offsetting carbon. Ideally, that marketplace then means that anyone, if you're taking a flight going back to Mexico, you can go and buy offsets on a local carbon marketplace, and your money doesn't go to planting trees in Namibia. 
it goes into a local company that's actually diverting carbon and lowering your carbon footprint. So you're stimulating the economy, you're right. pushing your brand, you have the, all this value added. So it kind of feels like it came full circle in that sense. And within that initial policy document, we've moved the dial on so many of the things in there. I feel like we've moved on them a lot in the last four years, over the nine before, you know, small amounts. But, you know, we brought in organic waste diversion finally in this term. Our step code, we're, we're being sort of more progressive on the step code. We finally have energy efficiency. We've done a whole bunch of uh, carbon-reducing initiatives, uh, boilers and all sorts of things at the arena and in the pool to improve our carbon footprint. We still have a long way to go. The or organic waste diversion from the landfill, even though we don't quantify the landfill as part of the district's carbon footprint because it's other people's garbage that's creating the methane, mm -hmm. the initiatives we do to divert it, we can use. So we've diverted um, several hundred tons of CO2 from the landfill from organic waste diversion. We've set up a system whereby we're going to start flaring it off. That diverts another 10,000 or so uh, tons of CO2 just by burning off flare as opposed to just letting methane escape right. on its own. And then if we can actually create a system where we're capturing that methane, our 14,000, 15,000 ton carbon footprint equivalent of the landfill goes down to under 1,000. Mm -hmm. So that's huge. I mean, so you're starting to see those things start to percolate in everything we do. Came down to that one conference you went to, huh? It, it, sometimes that's <laughs> what it does, but that was sort of the my aha moment is, you can't get, you can't accomplish anything by just sort of throwing an idea out there yeah. without doing the groundwork, without right. setting up the policy pieces that enable staff, that allows council to have an easy, intuitive decision to make you the next. Throw that rock into the uh, next. That you you throw can't, that rock into the pond and watch the ripples. You know, and yeah. and, and councillors who think they can just throw ideas out there and ever all of a sudden just say, oh yeah, that's a good idea, let's do it. They're going to be ineffective. Mm. They just will not actually. They might every once in a while get a little win here and there, but they're tiny compared to the ripple effect that you can have if you actually create a good foundation to move things forward. So that would be your big advice to new council is uh, build, do your homework and build proper policy. And and uh, have conversations with the community and with your cohort um, instead of trying to pretend you're smarter than everyone. You have to work. You have to get four people, three people to agree with you. You have to... Ideally, you want things like this to pass unanimously. That was one thing when I brought the 12-step pledge forward. I was like, I want to get unanimous support for this. I don't want to have one or two. One of the funniest stories, and I'm not going to name names, but people know who are involved. I had put a notice of motion forward, and then about two months lapsed between before council actually voted for it. I actually bought an inconvenient truth for all of council <laughs> to watch. In that time between like November, December of, of 2006 and February 2007, the global awareness about climate change went right. huge. And yeah. that's when Inconvenient Truth came out. And and so that was helpful. I remember I did a lot of homework about why local governments need to lead the charge. You know, it was, it was that local government that First Nations first got to vote, that women first got to vote. And I said this in the, and I had a whole speech prepared. It was the first time I'd really done a prepared speech. And I packed the room with people and... I said, and you know, and local government is where women first got the vote. And a, a councillor at the time, sort of, I think he, he was trying to be funny. He goes, oh, 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 that's the first, that was the first mistake local government made, you know, like kind of like right. the room went silent. <laughs> and I was just shocked. And uh, they all of a sudden realized that they weren't funny. And, and there was this little voice from an older woman in the back of the audience that said, I won't say the guy's name counselor you just lost 51 percent of the vote <laughs> and i knew right then and there that it would pass unanimously 
Very nice. Because <laughs> you, you couldn't argue against it. And so, yeah, and then you actually start to see momentum um, on things actually moving forward. So what's next for you then? Some time off, some relaxing. Some time off. I've got some family commitments in the next couple months. And then, I, you know, I've had some offers, some people come and talk to me about various opportunities in the future. I've always wanted to write a book or two, so I'm going to start to plot that out a bit. And I, I've uh, always been trying, you know, my experience uh, working where I've worked and being in the Middle East for 10 years and being and seeing history and... I always say I'm going to write a book, but it, you really, you know, uh, take it from me. If you want to write one, you have to dedicate the time. Yeah, to it. No. You, you need to. You need to. You can't start a business, have a family, and then no. start a podcast and think you can write a book. No, so, you can't be mayor <laughs> of a going concern town and and write a book. So yeah. I'm going to take the next few months to sort of create that foundation. I think, and then mm. um, we'll see where it goes. Uh, if there's if there's anything else you want to add, well, I people I would often get people say it must be a thankless job being the mayor. Like I don't know how you do it. You have to put up with so much nasty blah blah blah. And I said, you know what? You get way more thanks than the nasty in this job. People appreciate the time you put into it, and it's probably one of the most diverse and interesting gigs you're ever going to get. You meet tons of people. You get to know your community like nobody else gets to know your community. You get to uh, explore some best practices and ideas and deliberate with people and debate people. It's it's a really fascinating job and it's really fulfilling. It's got some real downsides to it and I think you know, I, I know I know good people who just won't run because of how mean people are in the world and they just don't want to put up with that in their lives. And certainly some of my decision, not not the overriding decision, but certainly some of it was like, I've put up with a lot of crap from people. Mm-hmm. A lot of meanness. But the generosity and the thanks and appreciation and respect, 98% of the people have shown me has been overwhelmingly positive. So thank the community for their support for allowing me to do this for the last 13 years. And uh, I think they're in good hands. I think, you know, we have to give people a chance to succeed. Um, we have to be productive in, because in, if they succeed, everyone succeeds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to be productive in moving the dial and not mean-spirited and nasty because it's it's a huge distraction be critical for sure be dis you know disagree with the position but don't personally attack people or call people dumb or or accuse people of i have been in politics for 13 years without a doubt some of the most wonderful people i have met are in politics and i remember reading a survey uh, it was a thing on the cbc and they'd done a survey and they asked people what do you think of politicians and the general consensus was, oh, they're just a bunch of scoundrels out for themselves. They're, you know, narcissists. They're ego-driven, blah, blah, blah. And then they asked the question, what do you think of the people you know who are in politics? What is your impression of those people? They are fine, upstanding, generous, giving people. They are the salt of the earth. They're wonderful people. So the perception of the whole is really bad. The perception of the individual and the individuals I have known in the local government have been amazing they all want to do well for this community they all think they have something to give and bring to the table they all believe in that piece of themselves they all have good intentions yes sometimes there's egos involved and that type of thing but to criticize and 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 attack people when i literally 99 98 of the people i've known in local government have been outstanding human beings it's just unfair and it's actually eroding democracy because you have good people that aren't running because they just don't want to put up with that. Yeah. So I think we need to tone down just generally societally. We 
we need to tone it down away from the us and them and you know you take the Garibaldi Springs decision the people who voted against it firmly believed they were you know had good reasons why they voted against it mm-hmm. people who voted for it firmly believed they had good reasons to vote for it mm-hmm. it's a difference of opinion it's not maliciousness it's not anything other than people saw different values in what we were preserving and what we weren't preserving that's it yeah it's about the argument it's not necessarily about the person it should yeah. never be about the person, and, we, and yet uh, you, when you don't have a real argument, you attack the person, and that's just, it isn't right. It, it does take a special person to run for politics, and it, because, I mean, <laughs> to go out there to the community and uh, to go out there in the community and uh, and to engage and to f- learn things, you know, you get you get quite of a, a perspective mm-hmm. of that, and for you to still be self-serving after that. But uh, uh, with that note, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast It was my today. pleasure. I'm glad. Thanks for coming out to the house. <laughs> quite, <laughs> the quite a venture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks, Marcus. This is the Sea to Sky podcast. If you have a comment or story ideas, please check out our website at seataskypodcast.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Sea to Sky podcast. Thank you for clicking us on. 